ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the Cardiff University Does God Exist debate. This is Owen Spalding from the Atheist Humanist and Secular Society. This is, uh, this is the lovely Ed Foster from the Christian Union. How about that? Thank you, Owen. We are your co-hosts for the evening. Tonight, we may consider ourselves as privileged people. What is about to occur can only be described as an historic event. Not only is this the first ever debate in Cardiff University on the notion of God, but by being the first ever debate on the notion of God in Cardiff University, it is almost certainly the first ever debate on the notion of God in any academic institution in the entire nation of Wales. <laughs> the debate will be comprised uh, of an opening statement from each speaker, which will last 15 minutes, and then we will have two rebuttals, each of 10 minutes, with then 15 minutes of a question and answer from the audience directed at either speaker. There will also be an interval of about 15 minutes after the introductory statements where you are invited to come and sample uh, the wonders of Christian Union and Atheist Humanist and Secular Society case. Now in the, in the posters and the flyers and the Facebook, I promised you a bake-off. But in the spirit of being friends with uh, the atheists, we decided to make it a cake-off cooperation. So just, it's a free-for-all, just come and grab whatever you want. Now before I hand over to Owen, I'd just like to give a quick uh, introduction to the Christian Union and our speaker, Mr. Peter Williams. Cardiff Christian Union is one of many Christian unions that are found in most universities across the country. Quite simply, we are people who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And not only that, but that that is the most important event in this planet. We believe that that message has changed the world before and can continue to do so. And it is our mission to share that message with any student who is willing to listen but always respectfully, respectfully, and only where appropriate. Our speaker, Mr. Peter Williams, is, is a Cardiff University alumni, and we believe he was in fact taught philosophy by his opponent, Professor Chris Norris. <laughs> I have to be careful because I keep saying Professor Chuck Norris. <laughs> Not that, Professor Chris Norris. Uh, he is a philosopher in residence at Damaris, uh, a Christian organisation based in Southampton, and he is the author of various books, such as this one, C.S. Lewis, such as The New Atheist, now available on Amazon. I believe this is fresh off the press, it was published two days ago, or something like that, so please get involved and buy it online. Um, just before I hand over, I'd like to say how much of a pleasure it's been working with the Atheist Humanist Secular Society in organising this debate and it's great for me to be able to say that whilst we do fundamentally disagree on a very important issue, that of God, we can both agree that um, to both of our groups of people, discerning truth is absolutely important and something we should all be trying to do. 
Is that true? Do you agree with that? <laughs> How are you doing? Um, we're a relatively new kind of society. Uh, we're very much in our infancy at the moment. Um, but it's really cool to see everyone uh, who's turned up. It's a great crowd. Yeah. Um, before I start, I want to say some kind of thank yous. Uh, certainly to College Union, Students Union rather, uh, and to Adam, the Society's officer, uh, wherever he is. Don't know. Um, yeah, he did a really good job of organising this, and to Ed as well, um, and Peter to come for coming this evening. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said before, we're a pretty kind of new society, so we're doing lots of things on Facebook at the moment, so I'm sure lots of you have Facebook. Um, so if you just go in the search box and type in Cardiff University Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society, um, I'm sure you'll find us, so join up on there. We're also on the campus groups page as well, so if you want to, or you're interested in getting involved, uh, sign up. So yeah, that's about it for me. Um, our speaker tonight is Professor Christopher Noyce. Um, he's my tutor and philosophy lecturer here at Cardiff University. And like Ed said before, it's a bit of a student versus master debate this evening, or so we're led to believe. Um, he's written over 30 books, uh, ranging from Derrida all the way to quantum theory. So yeah, I think you're in for a treat this evening. Um, we give a warm welcome to Professor Christopher Norris this evening. Thank you. Uh, the Christian Union representative is, is uh, agreeing with the motion this evening. He's going to start and he's going to give a 15 minute opening statement. So, um, so we're going to give another round of applause for people. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Well, good evening, everybody. It's marvellous to see such a good turnout this evening. And uh, I'm sure you'll continue in this uh, sort of collegiate style with which we opened and uh, get along to the uh, other societies' meetings occasionally as well, and not just for big events like this when there's free food on offer. Uh, so thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, thank you to the organisers, of course, those who've done all the cooking and so on, and to Professor Norris uh, for agreeing to be my uh, debate uh, opponent tonight. In my opening speech, I'd like to offer a cumulative case of four arguments for the existence of a god, starting with a version of the moral argument. Now, moral objectivism says that ethics is about discovering moral truths that exist even if we fail to discern them just as coming to know that the earth goes around the sun was a matter of discovering a truth rather than inventing it. According to moral objectivism, there are genuine moral disagreements. Uh, that is, the observation that people sometimes hold different moral opinions just goes to show that our moral beliefs can be either correct or incorrect according to the moral facts of the matter. But are there any moral facts of the matter? Well, it's interesting to note that those who point to the reality of evil as the basis for an argument against the existence of God certainly seem to think that there are moral facts. For nothing could be objectively evil if there are no objective moral values. Hence, the atheist philosopher Peter Cave defends moral objectivism by appealing to his intuitions about evil. He says, 
Whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument is sound. I would say that the properly basic intuition that, say, torturing innocent children for fun is wrong isn't undermined by the existence of the psychopath who enjoys torturing children. By the principle of credulity, torturing an innocent child for fun clearly isn't merely something that stops the child functioning normally, an empirical observation, or merely something that we dislike because of our evolutionary history or merely something that our society has decided to discourage. Rather, torturing an innocent child for fun is objectively wrong. So, at least one thing is objectively wrong, and therefore moral objectivism is true. Now, of course, my moral intuition about this could be wrong. But this very admission of fallibility actually presupposes the truth of moral objectivism. For if moral subjectivism were true, no moral claims could be objectively false. As the atheist Russ Schaefer-Landau argues, quote, subjectivism's picture of ethics entails a kind of moral infallibility for individuals and society. This sort of infallibility is hard to swallow, and I agree. Finally, if moral objectivism were false, it couldn't be true that we objectively ought to consider arguments against objectivism, or that we ought to consider those arguments fairly. Knowing this, we see that to embrace an argument for subjectivism would be to take the self-contradictory position that A, there are no objective moral values, but that B, we objectively ought to accept subjectivism. Now, interestingly, many atheists argue that if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist. For example, Jean-Paul Sartre said that he found it, quote, extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. An objective moral value is a transcendent ideal, one that prescribes and obligates behaviour. But an ideal implies a mind. A prescription requires a prescriber. And an obligation demands a person. As H.P. Owen argued, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God, end quote. Now it's important not to confuse this argument with the false claim that one must believe in God in order to know or to do the right thing. 
The moral argument that I've presented is concerned with moral ontology and not moral epistemology. My second argument is a version of the argument from reason. The atheist Sam Harris affirms, quote, our logical, mathematical, and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. Likewise, Patricia Churchland claims that, quote, boiled down to the essentials, a nervous system enables the organism to succeed in the four Fs, feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing. The principal chore of a nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth, she says, definitely takes the hindmost. But if truth takes the hindmost on naturalism, how can Harris and Churchland be confident about the truth of their naturalism? As the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel concedes, quote, the reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of reasoning we employ are not merely human, but belong to a more general category of mind. That is, our rationally inescapable cognitive confidence is at odds with a naturalistic worldview, but it stands in a mutually supporting relationship with a theistic worldview. Third, I'd like to present a version of what's called the fine-tuning argument. Neither complexity without specificity, nor specificity without complexity, compels us to infer design. However, if you saw a poem written out in alphabet fridge magnets. You'd infer design as its cause. Such a pattern is both specified, it adheres to an independently knowable pattern, and sufficiently improbable to show that our design inference is merited on the grounds that in all cases where we know the causal origin of specified complexity like that, Experience shows that design played a causal role in its occurrence. Now, this fairly uncontroversial observation becomes highly significant in the light of, for example, Stephen Hawking's affirmation that for life to exist in the universe, quote, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. That is, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits this quality of specified complexity which indicates design. Fourthly and finally, a version of the cosmological argument. Suppose I ask you to loan me a certain book, but you say, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy and then I'll lend it to you. But suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on, ad infinitum. Well, surely two things are clear. First, if that process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I will never get the book. Secondly, if I get the book, then the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. 
somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had to have had the book without having to borrow it. Likewise, argues Richard Pertill, consider any contingent reality, says, quote, the same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. The atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin recently affirmed that, quote, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Big Bang cosmology describes the evolution of the universe over a finite length of time. But it doesn't explain why the universe exists. Concerning this question, the physicist Paul Davis observes, quote, one might consider some supernatural force as being responsible for the Big Bang, or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. It seems to me that we don't have too much choice, either something outside of the physical world or an event without a cause. But a physical event is a contingent reality, and a contingent reality is contingent upon something beyond itself. Hence, every physical event must have at least one cause, at least in a general sense of the term. Since the first physical event cannot depend upon a physical reality, the finitude of the past highlights the need for a non-contingent, and therefore non-physical, first cause. That is, to put it into syllogisms, one, there was a first physical event. Two, all physical events have at least one cause outside and independent of themselves. Three, it follows that therefore the first physical event had at least one cause outside and independent of itself. But four, the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. Five, therefore it follows, the first physical event had a non-physical cause. But six, it is impossible for everything to have a cause. Therefore, seven, it follows that there exists a first, uncaused, non-contingent and non-physical cause of physical reality. Now, quantum mechanics, it's important to note, doesn't provide a counterexample to the second, the causal premise. Even under the disputed Copenhagen interpretation, quantum events happen against a backdrop of physical reality that causally conditions, even if it doesn't causally necessitate the events in question. Atheist philosopher Quentin Smith, for example, confirms that quantum considerations, quote, at most tend to show that a causal laws govern the change of conditions of particles. They state nothing about the causality or a causality of absolute beginnings. End quote. Since the universe had a beginning, non-theists must either deny our causal premise or claim that every physical event has a physical cause. However, 
making it an exception to our causal premise when it comes to the first physical event is entirely ad hoc. Whereas invoking the necessity of physical causation generates an infinite regress. That's the end of my opening address. Thank you. A big thank you to Peter Williams for that. Um, can I introduce now the representative for the uh, Cardiff University Atheist, Humanist and Secularist Society, Professor Christopher Norris. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. You're, you're a credit to the Cardiff Philosophy Department. <laughs> no, you really are. It's good to hear you arguing so well. Um, I'm very glad that you uh, grasped the bull by the horns and didn't uh, take refuge in the various kinds of qualification and um, ways of evading the issue that tend to crop up in these things, um, often known as death by a thousand qualifications. Uh, so, so what I'm doing really is, is um, attacking or at least controverting the, um, a fairly standard version of uh, Christian arguments for the existence of God and a fairly standard Christian conception of God. And I'm glad to hear you defending uh, some kind of personalism with uh, regard to the divine um, attributes. Um, I take it that traditional, or at least the most long-standing, uh, scholastic proofs of the existence of God, arguing from um, a priori conceptions and the ontological argument, um, have been shown to be logically invalid by a whole series of recent developments in logic that have shown them to be um, question-begging or um, circular or self-contradictory or in various ways incapable of proving what they set out to prove. That would include some of the updates on those arguments, including the one that you mentioned from uh, the most resourceful and determined um, continuer of that kind of argument, an American philosopher, Alvin Plantinger, which has to do with what he sees as the limits of naturalism. And he takes naturalism to be, by definition, the opposite of um, his particular kind of theism. Um, his argument, as you said, as you very uh, uh, adroitly summarized, um, is basically that naturalism must fail by its own premises. Um, if you're a thoroughgoing, committed naturalist, then you will have no reason to believe in truth, including the truth of your own arguments. You will believe that human reason is infallibly natural because truth is not in any sense. It doesn't have any kind of premium attached to it. We're adapted to survive in a certain ecological niche, not by finding uh, objective truths or any kind of truths. Um, well, we are adapted partly because we do discover truths. We discover scientific truths and we learn to reason logically and to explain things and to look out for those things that most concern our survival. And to do that, we have to reason in a logical and consistent and coherent manner. So I think that uh, Plantinger's argument falls at the first uh, fence. What I'll be doing from now on is basically um, combining some ideas I thought up beforehand with specific address to the, the points that Peter Williams raised in his, uh, his presentation. Um, I agree that up to a certain point in history, it would have been rational, it would have seemed rational at least, it would have been rational, yeah, to believe in the argument from design, some version of the argument from design. If you looked around and you saw how extraordinarily well adapted we were to our ecological niche, and how extraordinarily well adapted the, the world, our environment, the cosmos, in fact, was to our needs as uh, human creatures, then you would have been struck with, with wonderment, and uh, you would have believed in some kind of designer. And you would have followed something like the, the, the arguments of William Paley. Um, in other words, um, you would believe that this could not all be just contingent and haphazard and, uh, and a matter of chance. But then Darwin came along, 
Darwin, one of several thinkers who struck what I take to be a death blow to Christianity or to any kind of theistic belief. Um, Darwin's explanation, you know, for all the attempts of uh, upholders of intelligent design to find holes in it or to argue that it is not adequately grounded or the evidence isn't sufficient or there are gaps in the evidence, uh, is one of the most well corroborated, not proven, I mean, no scientist uh, worth his or her salt is going to say proven definitively once and for all, but the most powerfully and massively corroborated uh, theory going. And this was one of the most dramatic events in history. Had I been born before, not just Darwin, I mean, these ideas were knocking around in a kind of unofficial way long before Darwin and, and Wallace came along with the theory of, um, of natural selection through um, um, mutation. Um, but, these, but I mean, before that, it would have been rational, up to a point at least, to believe in uh, some kind of theistic, uh, some kind of um, Christian or monotheistic theology, a designer. After that, it wasn't. Quite simply, it wasn't. This is fairly hard to live with for many people, but nevertheless, I think, on the evidence and interpreting the evidence rationally, this is our situation. Um, another argument um, from David Hume, the philosopher, and Hume plays a rather ambiguous role in all this, and uh, Hume, some of Hume's arguments were, in fact, uh, taken up and developed by Peter Williams, and very often are by, by Christian philosophers. Um, Hume, though, was the first to present a, a natural history of religion, and his arguments are very powerful. Um, we can understand why people believe in religion. We, we can understand why, for reasons of consolation or comfort or security, um, because they're afraid of death, because they grieve for the death of their loved ones, because they need some sense of, um, of a, a, a rational moral order in the world, they fall back on some kind of theistic belief. Um, this is perfectly understandable, and in a sense, uh, you know, I, I, I sympathise with it. You know, I, who knows? I hope that I won't eventually uh, sort of subscribe to those beliefs through some kind of pressure on me, um, fear or whatever, but I can't guarantee that. But I think that if I do, then I shall be, as it were, caving in to, um, to a need, to a psychological need to embrace these beliefs. We can understand a lot about the psychology of religious belief, the need for consolation. We can understand a lot about the social psychology and the power politics of religious belief, the need to control people, which has very often been very prominent in systems of, uh, of priestcraft and uh, state-sponsored religion. We can also understand it in more philosophical terms, um, in terms that, uh, that Peter mentioned in, in his presentation as the need to believe that there's some kind of moral order in the universe. People look around and they feel, you know, they see flagrant examples of injustice and of um, undeserved suffering and of um, undeservedly merited um, vice and iniquity, and they think this is just not enough, you know, this doesn't square with our moral intuitions, and we think there must be an afterlife, there must be a judge, there must be some kind of ultimate judgment on human lives and some kind of payoff for those who have behaved well and some kind of... Um, um, suffering for those who have not behaved well. Um, it is natural. You find this even in the, the most uh, sort of eminent philosophers. You find it in Kant, for instance, just intolerable to Kant that uh, there should not be some kind of eventual retribution for those who have misbehaved and reward for those who have behaved, to simplify his, uh, his position. So we can understand it psychologically and sociologically and politically and historically, but that doesn't give you any kind of theological warrant for the, um, for the belief in God. Um, 
On the point of, about objectivism in morals, well, I would absolutely defend that. I'm a realist about morals. I think there is right and wrong, and we might all be systematically confused about it. We might live in a society like, uh, pre, uh, like apartheid South Africa, for instance, and numerous societies around the world now, where the majority opinion, virtually the, the sort of universal consensus of opinion, uh, is wrong, quite simply wrong, when judged against certain ultimate moral standards. But you don't need theism, you don't need Christianity, you don't need belief in any kind of personal executive God in order to support or underwrite or endorse that kind of um, moral realism. Um, now, I think that um, the case goes, uh, goes further than that. Um, I think that Christian belief can be actively harmful. I'm not saying that Christians are bad. This would be ridiculous. You know, I know plenty of very, very good Christian people and plenty of people um, who, um, uh, whose, whose, whose behavior and whose moral character squares perfectly well with their religious beliefs. I think they would be good people, though, without the religion. And I think the great danger is that bad people, people who, um, whose basic impulses um, are wrong, will find support and endorsement and a kind of supernatural um, guarantee or um, sort of power of underwriting uh, their bad behavior. I think here of Tony Blair, you can have an absolutely sort of shining conviction of the rectitude of everything you do, and you can commit enormous evil in the, um, in, in, in the belief in your own moral rectitude, the absolutely sort of shining, unquestioning belief that what you're doing is right. That's the great danger. I think the basically good, well-disposed people, people equipped, if you like, and this is a, a very sort of Darwinian, naturalistic way of looking at it, with a decent number of other regarding impulses, uh, will behave well. I think this is one of the basic things about my quarrel with, 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 with uh, and many atheists quarrel with Christianity. It is that good people, but people who basically have not been got at by bad creeds, be they political or moral or religious, will behave well. They have a decent number of other regarding impulses. They are naturally upset, offended by the sight of human suffering, and they'll do as, as well as they can to alleviate people's condition. Okay? But I think that very often religious conviction, uh, not in the case of the vast majority of, of, of the religious believers here, but in the case of some few very often powerful people, can lead to extremely bad actions. Okay? Um, so I think that um, we, we, can have, we can have transcendence, we can have what the moral realists want, transcendence in that sense, you know, the acceptance that we might just be wrong. Uh, this is absolutely a crucial thing about the, not the atheist, but the, the, the non-theist viewpoint. Of course we might be wrong about a whole bunch of things. Scientific truths, what we believe about history, what we believe about morals, other people, the way we behave. We might just be systematically confused. But that doesn't mean you need some kind of ultimate uh, sort of um, God figure you know, to, 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 to serve as the locus of those, um, those, those transcendent values. What it means is, quite simply, we can be wrong, okay? So I think all the arguments, you know, from, some, from the need, the supposed need for some kind of ultimate transcendent authority to give substance and um, ultimate value to our, our moral beliefs is, is mistaken. You can have that perfectly well, and you can have it better, what's more, in, in a safer way by sticking to human beings, basically, and sticking to human communal values and to a sense of, of um, the ultimate sanctity of human life, if you like. And sanctity there doesn't carry any kind of transcendent or, um, or, um, or religious um, implications. Um, now, I, I think there, there are too many examples of the way that Christian believers can be pushed in extremely immoral directions for, for it to require any kind of detailed documentation. 
Um, I, I, if you think of the, 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 uh, the, pope, the present Pope's attitude toward um, the use of contraception, especially in the South African context, um, and numerous examples, historically and in the present day. Uh, this is the way in which religious dogma, ultimately founded on the belief in some kind of uh, ultimate monotheistic religious source of authority in moral matters, can massively pervert um, judgment. Okay? Um, I think that, that religious belief has too often been used as, as a support and an endorsement for that kind of behaviour. It's very often been used, and is in the present in, in, in the world nowadays, um, as an excuse or a pretext for brutalising or for um, marginalising women. I think the monotheistic religions have been responsible for an enormous amount of harm in, in, in that particular um, context. And there again, it is far better, far safer, far more um, morally um, progressive to, um, to consult human interests. A very simple reckoning, which is what we, I mean, this is consequentialism. Whenever you're faced with some kind of moral dilemma, don't go chasing off to some kind of religious absolute. You know, don't look for some sort of ultimate authority uh, to back up what you're saying. Um, always ask yourself, is this unbalance going to do more good than harm for the greatest possible number of people? And it will land you up with all kinds of dilemmas and difficulties and problems and paradoxes and test cases and um, very often they'll be soluble. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll be conflicting intuitions. But if we're going to work out, you know, the way of getting a better society, a better world, a better moral system, a better way of thinking about other people, um, then it's going to have to be in terms of human interest rather than divine interest. And as soon as you bring in the interests of religion, um, then it's going to distort that reckoning because it's going to let some people believe that they have the right to override human interests in the interests of some particular pet set of notions of their own or particular religious set of, um, of uh, priorities. Um, on the argument from quantum mechanics, um, I think quantum mechanics is such a mess, you know, conceptually it's such a mess that it's impossible to derive any conclusions from it. The, um, uh, the proponents of the, the orthodox Copenhagen interpretation of, uh, of, um, of quantum mechanics uh, were very often trying to, uh, to curry favour with the wider public by making science seem more sort of user-friendly. And um, so they, um, they wanted to introduce the idea of observer um, uh, intervention and, um, you know, the idea that ultimately what we observe is uh, a creation of our act of observation, so it depends which way you set up the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the radio telescope or the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the observing mechanism. Um, but uh, there's a lot of confusion, and um, atheists can take comfort from it, and religious people can take comfort from it, and ultimately nothing can be derived from it because it is such a mess. So, uh, um, okay. Now, um, it seems to me that, um, I mean, I feel a bit guilty about this in a way, because there are lots of really nice Christians around. Christianity has been, well, I have to say, it's been knocked into some kind of decent, tolerable, civilized shape over the centuries. But there have been long periods of history when it has not taken a civilized shape. And sometimes, and here I don't refer to, uh, to Peter at all, Sometimes talking to Christians, the more militant Christians, the more evangelical ones, and represent evangelical or fundamentalist representatives of the other monotheistic religions, you get the impression if they once got to power, then they would not be quite so civilized and not be quite so tolerant. And there are large parts of the world today where that's very much in evidence. And here again, I think it's a matter of um, the danger of people who believe that they have some kind of transcendental warrant, some kind of overriding um, um, vision, if you like, vouchsafed to them alone, which 
permits them to override human interests and the interests of shared humanity. And I think that's the most important um, point to, uh, to hang on to. The other point is that religions are good insofar as they take um, a decent, tolerant, and liberal view of human beings. This has a lot to do with your understanding of human nature. Um, Christianity tends to inculcate a very low and rather cynical view of human nature. Um, the idea of original sin, the kind of thing I was brought up in school. You know, they, we were always taught, one of the O-level set texts, or GCSE set texts, was Lord of the Flies. And if there's one message that book wants to bang home, it is that human beings are beastly, and these little boys in the book are beastly. And if you don't uh, keep an eye on them, if you don't discipline them, if you don't uh, subject them to, to sort of checks, and including religious belief, then they're going to behave very badly to each other. So we want a really sort of tight, top-down, thoroughly monitored, repressive society. This is a bad way to bring people up. For one thing, it teaches you a bad morality. It's the idea that anything that's moral is going to be the result of some sort of repression. It's going to be the result of some kind of superego bearing down your natural instincts, okay? So anything decent you can make of human beings is going to involve basically suppressing everything they think they want in the in the interest of what you think they ought to want, okay? Um, now, it, this is not just, I mean, this, you find this in Kant, you find this in quite a lot of ethical philosophers, and it's something that ethical philosophers are just beginning to get over, in fact, that idea. Um, but it is far better to recognize that human beings, although they're liable to behave badly, when they are drafted or recruited into bad systems of thought with, you know, religious or state power to enforce those systems, if that isn't the case, then they will tend to have what I called at the beginning a decent number of other regarding impulses. You know, there's something about us for evolutionary and naturalistic reasons that means that since we're not particularly, compared with the animals, not particularly fast or strong, or, you know, um, we need to be firstly pretty intelligent, and that's why the naturalist argument um, doesn't undermine the interests of truth. On the contrary, it reinforces them. And they have to be pretty cooperative. They have to get on with each other, okay? Otherwise, they're going to be tearing each other apart and they're not going to have the, the, the strength of mutual purpose to, um, to survive, quite simply, in, in their ecological niche, okay? So they need to be fairly decent. And any doctrine, any uh, sort of sheer creed that tells us they're not decent is liable to fill people with... Uh, Self-loathing, and goodness knows the history of Christianity has some spectacular examples of that and what's emerging now about um, the, the church in Ireland and what was done to great numbers of um, unmarried mothers in the interests of that morality. Uh, so to fill them with self-loathing and insecurity and mutual suspicion. I think it's a bad psychology and it's a bad philosophy and it's a bad morals. Okay, so that, th th those would be my, um, my arguments. And... Um, I leave you to decide. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to adjourn till about, for about 15, 20 minutes or so, so you can grab some cake and that kind of thing. Um, if you get into your seats again at about 8 o'clock, thereabouts, that would be great. Uh, just to say, everyone's got little raffle tickets. These are so you can vote whether you agree with the notion, disagree, or whether you're unsure. We're running a little bit late, so we'll probably give you about 10 minutes to grab some cake, and we'll give you a five-minute notice to get back in your seats. Thank you very much. Okay. That brings us to the end of our interval. I hope you really enjoyed the Atheist Union Secular Society and Christian Union Cake-Off Cooperation. Um, I just want to quickly draw your attention 
So these little pieces of paper, they are available on the tables next to where the voting boxes are. On these is just an email address for both the Atheist Society and the Christian Union. Um, if you would like to get involved with either of these groups, please just take a piece of paper and send the person an email. Um, we've had a bit of feedback that it's a little difficult to hear, so I'm just going to give a little test to this mic here, and if people at the back can't hear me, please could you say... Can everyone hear me all right? Okay, thank you. Speakers, please speak really loudly and clearly into the microphone. Uh, with that, I would like to invite Peter Williams back up to the microphone for our first 10-minute rebuttal. Thank you, Peter. Well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the cakes. So, in the uh, attacking column, as it were, of Professor Norris's speech, I detected two main complaints uh, against religion and against Christianity. Uh, the first is that it's possible to, to produce uh, a natural history of religion, that is to give uh, psychological and sociological reasons and so on, why people might want to believe in God. But this is simply an example of the genetic fallacy, that is, attacking the truth of a view by focusing on where it came from, rather than the question of whether or not the view is true. Because obviously, uh, a view could be true, even though you got that view from a very unreliable source of information. And so, I don't think that we've yet seen an argument against the truth of the religious belief in the existence of a god there, but rather uh, an attempt to sort of psychoanalyze, uh, to explain away why people might believe in a god. And that's a sword that could cut both ways, of course, were I, were I to uh, want to go there. But I think I want to stay away from psychoanalyzing the opposition to actually looking at the issue of whether or not the beliefs that we're talking about are true or false, have good reasons for their truth or falsity. The second complaint that I detected as I was furiously scribbling away my notes here is that religion can be harmful. It can be dogmatic. It can be fundamentalist. Well, I agree wholeheartedly with those sentiments. Again, of course, two could play that game, but let's not go there. Theism could be true, even though people do use it as a pretext for repression and so on. After all, um, what would you think of a Christian who came up here and criticised Darwinism by attacking the eugenics movement, which uh, used Darwinist science for a particular social evil, you would say, look, there is no necessary link between believing in Darwinism and believing in eugenics. Uh, to attack eugenics simply is not to attack Darwinism. Well, neither is to attack the evils of uh, certain religious institutions and so on to attack the truth of the belief that there is a God. So actually, in his first speech, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I didn't actually detect any positive arguments from Professor Norris 
for the truth of atheism. Turning to his responses to the four arguments that I gave for theism, I'm glad to see that he agrees with me about the truth of moral realism. We have some common shared ground there. Of course, he does disagree with me about the need to bring God into the picture in order to coherently explain moral realism. And remember, the claim that I made is not that you need to believe in God in order to tell right from wrong. Uh, Maybe consequentialism uh, as a moral normative system will do a good job at helping you tell the difference between what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, That's beside the point as far as the argument that I gave uh, is. Rather, I was arguing, and I gave three arguments for thinking that if there wasn't a God, then there couldn't be such a thing as these objective moral values that we both believe exist. And I'd like to see in later speeches uh, how Professor Norris responds to those three arguments that I gave. Uh, Just to summarise again, um, a philosopher called A.E. Taylor uh, puts it this way. Were there no will in existence except the wills of human beings who are so often ignorant of the law of right and so often defy it, it's not apparent what the validity of that law, that moral law, would mean. Recognition of the validity of the law thus seems to carry with it a reference to an intelligence which has not, like our own, to make acquaintance with it piecemeal, slowly and with difficulty, but has always been in full and clear possession of it. And a will which does not, like our own, often set it at naught, but is guided by it in all its operations. Uh, Such a a, a character, a person who is by nature good, uh, could contain those moral ideals, could prescribe those ideals to us and obligate our behaviour. Because it's a personal reality, it can do all those things. Because it's a transcendent reality, it can ground objective moral values. Moving on to the argument from reason which I gave, the reply from Professor Norris here is that we are adapted because we reason well. But I think this is far too quick a move. Um, Reasoning well would, of course, be adaptive. But can you explain reasoning well through a mindless process of adaption. Doesn't, as I argued, a naturalistic assumption about reality and the nature of mind actually undermine cognitive confidence by making it unlikely that if naturalism were true, our our reasoning would be rational in that sense. Not works. Remember I said it comes down to this distinction between uh, what works, which can be selected for in a mindless process of, of history, and what's true. And those two things don't necessarily coincide. Indeed, Professor Norris made exactly the same move in response to planting here that uh, Professor Daniel Dennett made in a recent debate that they had. Daniel Dennett similarly asserted that evolution by natural selection with its naturalistic presupposition explains why beliefs that we have are reliable truth trackers. But I agree with Plantinga that on a naturalistic, on a naturalistic theory of evolution, the, the semantic reliability of an organism's beliefs uh, just don't follow from the reliability of, of our information acquiring and output syntactic apparatus, to put it in terms that Daniel Dennett uses. 
Uh, our neural physiological properties are, according to the naturalist, either identical with our beliefs or the things upon which our beliefs supervene. But it's the physical properties that do all of the causing and that interact with all of the other things in our natural history, not the beliefs as such. So yes, the natural history can select for the neurophysiological properties of our bodies. They can get our nervous systems to behave in a way that gets our bodies in the right way to survive, as Patricia Churchland argues. But that doesn't do one whit to move from the, from the syntactics to the semantics, to move from uh, the idea that, that our behaviour is uh, conducive to survival to give you a justification for thinking that our, the way in which we reason in our, in our thinking about things is true. Uh, because natural selection renders those two things asunder within a naturalistic framework. So, for example, a naturalistic philosopher um, such as uh, Richard Rorty uh, agrees with me about this. He says, Richard Rorty says, the idea that one species of organism is, unlike all the others, orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, but towards truth, with a capital T, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass. Uh, so I'm making an argument that many atheist philosophers would make, but simply pointing out that holding that position amounts to sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. Finally, um, Professor Norris says that Paley sank Darwin, but my argument didn't have anything to do with Paley or Darwin. It was a fine-tuning argument about the preconditions of anything evolving at all. So again, uh, we haven't yet had a response to the design argument that I made. And fourthly and finally, about the, the cosmological argument that I made, um, Professor Norris doesn't like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Well, me neither. That, but I built my argument uh, specifically around that issue so that whatever view you take on the interpretation of quantum mechanics, be it the Copenhagen interpretation or not, my argument would still go through. Uh, so apart from agreeing with Professor Norris that I don't like the Copenhagen interpretation either, uh, in fact, Professor Norris hasn't yet actually attached the cosmological argument that I made. Uh, so I await his response to those issues. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you to Peter. Um, Chris is back now to his first rebuttal. Thank you. Okay, I, I ran over slightly in, the, uh, in my, my first presentation, so I'll try and keep this fairly brief. Um, it, it does strike me that the, uh, the argument from the, the personality of, uh, of God, I mean, this, this uh, strong realist argument, which is... Uh, well, I'm happy to meet, actually. That, 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 so we, we, we mustn't sort of water down the attributes of God to turn them into some kind of um, ground of all being or some kind of impersonal Buddhist uh, um, uh, sort of ultimate explanation for everything. Uh, um, it does strike me that this rather backfires. Um, when you conceive God as a person, and when you try to um, reconcile that notion of personality with the traditional um, Christian attributes ascribed to God, then you get um, a person who is rather obnoxious, um, a kind of arbitrary tyrant, and someone who, as was recognized by some of the Christian church fathers, um, was liable to, um, on a rather arbitrary whim, condemn large sections of humanity to eternal torment for the sake of some rather trivial sin. 
Um, so that, for instance, Tertullian uh, was uh, inclined to think that the, uh, the pleasures of the blessed in heaven were considerably increased by looking down and seeing, for instance, their mother-in-law boiling in hell. So um, it does seem to me that the, uh, the traditional Christian God is not the kind of person we would wish to encounter in ordinary life. And um, if he's not the kind of person we wish to encounter in ordinary life, then it seems rather mean of him to have set himself up in such a way um, as to place his um, moral attributes beyond our possible cognizance. Uh, the great problem, really, with the, the Christian um, idea of God as some kind of person is that it's a person so remote from us and so uh, sort of unrecognisably peculiar in his um, sort of moral habits of judgment um, that he's placed, um, well, that we're rather unfairly left um, sort of risking eternal damnation through our inability to understand him. And this would be rather, rather mean-minded on God's part. Okay, so um, conceiving God as a person is an honourable kind of uh, move to make because it means at least that you can sort of uh, face up to the issues fairly and squarely and not water them down. On the other hand, it does land you with some, uh, some rather difficult moral objections from the atheist quarter. Um, secondly, the, the claims to, um, to knowledge. I do think there's a constant tendency for uh, defenders of theism to flip over, as it were, from um, two senses of the, word, of the, of the verb to know. Okay, on the one hand, there is knowledge, the kind of knowledge we attribute to other people. If we say that so-and-so knows something, then we mean they've got good rational grounds or evidential warrant or some, um, some supportable reason for claiming that kind of knowledge. Um, there's the other, the other uh, sense of no, which is the kind of um, fiercely convinced individual psychological state of knowing. Okay, so I just know something is the case, and that may go along with thumping the table or um, simply being in a state of burning conviction, what I've described as the, the Tony Blair illusion. Um, and it seems to me that the two kinds of knowledge very often get mixed up in this debate. The fine-tuning argument, well, there's one very respectable interpretation of fine-tuning, um, and that is that it is extremely unlikely given the multitude of uh, possible uh, physical constants that might have obtained in the, in the universe, that things should have turned out the way they have. Okay? Well, it is. You know, um, probabilistically, it's very unlikely. Um, on the other hand, whichever interpretation of um, present-day physics you take, whether it's the many-worlds interpretation or a single-world interpretation, um, you can't derive any kind of theistic argument from, uh, from that. It only seems remarkable to us as human beings, looking around and feeling how well adapted we are to our ecological niche, that it is some kind of mirac miracle which would be inexplicable except in theistic terms. Um, it's purely contingent. There are all kinds of contingencies around. Uh, we find it very difficult to get our heads around the sheer extent of contingency that, um, that rules our world. You know, just last week or just a few days ago, we were very nearly wiped out by an asteroid impact, an extraordinary thing that's been rather played down, perhaps for reasons of preserving the public peace or uh, sort of the, the security of our individual psychologies. But it very nearly happened, and it could have happened. Now, you may, if you like, say it was divine intervention that prevents it that prevented that asteroid from being just slightly off the course that it did, in fact, pursue. You know, just a matter of several thousand miles. It was closer to us than some of the satellites, the, the further out satellites. An extraordinary thing. Um, but we've been extremely lucky. But to invoke some kind of divine intervention as the reason why we, uh, we got off lightly this time uh, would be simply unnecessary. It was, it was chance. You know, we can thank our lucky stars, all right, but we shouldn't put it down to some kind of divine intervention. The fine-tuning argument, then, is capable of uh, a rational, uh, rational uh, interpretation. Yep, it's unlikely that things turned out the way they have. The causal laws, the basic constants, the basic forces of nature, etc. Um, but that is not any kind of argument for, uh, for theism. 
Um, the main problem with um, all the arguments from um, intelligent design is that they invoke unnecessary additional causes, supplementary causes or um, um, uh, redundant additional causes, rather like the angel-guided the angel-guided theory of planetary motion. You know, when Kepler came along, and then when his uh, his findings and observations were uh, refined and worked out in detail by mathematicians and astronomers. It was always possible for Christians to argue, ah, oh, yes, but the reason why the planets uh, follow these uh, elliptical paths, the reason why these mathematical equations work so well when we're describing them, um, is that they are guided by angels who themselves um, are um, sort of guided in, in their, um, their guiding motions by the, um, um, by the laws of physics and mathematics. Well, this is an unnecessary hypothesis. As Laplace said to Napoleon, I have no need of that hypothesis. It's redundant and uh, it doesn't serve any kind of extra explanatory purpose. And when we're thinking about ultimate explanations, we should always go for explanations. In other words, we should go for something that is rationally satisfying and that covers the maximum range of evidence and that doesn't introduce any kind of additional redundant hypotheses. It's the basic principle of, nat of the natural sciences. And it should also, I think, guide us in our moral reasoning. Okay? We should always argue from the observable effects of certain human choices and actions on humanity so far to the likely um, future effects of certain, certain actions. Um, of course, we can't always make a sort of full provision for all future contingencies, but we can do our best. Um, and this is my main reason for saying we'd much better not chase after some kind of transcendental justification for our, um, our reckonings. Um, as regards the genetic fallacy, um, well, I, I go with Hume on this. I think if you can explain someone's beliefs, which on the face of it involve an appeal to transcendent causes that are beyond human cognition, by looking at their desires and their hopes and their wishes and their fears, then this is not a genetic fallacy. You are explaining why they believe what they do, but you are showing that they have no rational grounds or evidential grounds for believing those things. Sometimes the genetic fallacy can be a fault. You know, it can be uh, um, a falsehood. It is one of the, um, the, the sort of most prominent falsehoods to which uh, most people are, um, are subject in one way or another. But in certain cases, it is not a fallacy. It is, in fact, a way of explaining, and to that extent, explaining away beliefs. If those beliefs go beyond any available evidence or rational power of deduction, and you can explain them psychologically, that's a good reason for at least suspecting them. Not necessarily dismissing them out of hand, but at least suspecting that they may not be rationally um, motivated. Um, as regards objective moral values, and here I'm coming on to uh, Peter's response to my, my, my first presentation. Um, I'm a realist and an objectivist. I believe in transcendent uh, moral truths that may uh, escape or elude our present best powers of cognition. There may be whole com communities who, that are deceived, systematically deceived in various ways, but I believe they must be in principle within human grasp. Here again, I come out very strongly against the idea there might be some ultimate transcendent and therefore ultimately humanly unknowable source of, uh, of values. I think that whether we're defending realism in the physical sciences or in mathematics, and I think that's probably the most um, interesting example here, you know, mathematical truths are verification transcendent. Um, they are recognition transcendent. There are a whole lot of truths, an infinite number of mathematical truths, that our brains may not be powerful enough or defined enough or developed enough ever, you know, whatever the future course of human evolution, to discover. Nevertheless, there are objective truths. Okay? Um, but at least the basic modes of mathematical reasoning are within human cognitive grasp. 
And any appeal to principles that, that are so transcendent, that are so radically transcendent, as potentially to escape the furthest possible powers of human grasp um, in, in morals, okay, are extremely dubious and capable of extremely bad and inhuman, inhumane uses. How long have I got? One minute. One minute, right, okay. Um, on the point about naturalism and rationalism, a very important point, I think. Yep, there's a lot of evidence in the experimental literature um, of, of the fact that human beings go wrong in their reasoning. They're prone to, um, to mistake probabilities, to reason um, irrationally, and um, they're very bad at uh, taking account of the evidence and weighing up probabilities in any given set of circumstances. Um, nevertheless, here again, we much better rely on the power of our own human intelligence to eventually spot and correct and allow for those errors. Um, after all, if you read some of these books, there's a very interesting recent book by Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, no, by Kahneman, actually. They, they were originally a team. Uh, that, that just very systematically and rather depressingly goes through all these errors. But nevertheless, someone, something enabled Kahneman to understand and to recognize and to diagnose um, these, these typical faults, these besetting faults of, uh, of human um, uh, sort of rational capacity. Okay? Human beings are capable of, as it were, bootstrapping themselves up and surveying their own faults. And that applies not only to probabilities and uh, sort of practical everyday del deliberations. It applies to moral reasoning too. We're capable of, this is the, the history of liberalism, of secular liberalism and humanism, is a history of suddenly realizing that for all our high principles, we got it wrong. There are whole areas of human experience. This applies to gender politics and to racial politics and to a whole range of, of important things. Um, so you, you can say, well, liberal, liberals have never lived up to their own standards. Humanists have never lived up to their own standards. But at least humanism um, lets us see that if we're going to get any kind of advance, we have to look at human interests and see our blind spots and just work as hard as we possibly can to overcome them. And unfortunately, theism distracts us from that absolutely primary task. Okay, thank you very much. finding this as uh, stimulating uh, as I am. Okay. Right. I do need this. Right. Professor Norris says that when you view God as a person, you automatically view him as someone obnoxious, or rather you should automatically view that personal God as someone obnoxious. For example, someone who on arbitrary whim would condemn people to hell. That the traditional Christian image of God is, to put it mildly, not very nice. Now, that would be a fascinating topic for a debate on the truth of Christianity or perhaps the truth of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. It would seem to be certainly an argument against that. But I'm not sure that it's an argument against the existence of a God, which is the topic for tonight's debate. So as fascinating as those issues would be to go into, and as much as a Christian I feel, I, mean, I want to rush uh, to the, uh, the defense of the honor of the God in whom I do believe as a Christian, 
I'm going to uh, delimit myself this evening uh, to the debate topic. Knowledge, meaning a good rational warrant or having grounds or a reason for your belief, is certainly what I want to emphasise tonight, and I hope nobody's caught me uh, thumping the table at any stage in tonight's debate. On this issue of whether giving a natural history of religions is a genetic fallacy or not, Professor Norris now says that what he's actually doing in that argument, if I understood him correctly, is that he's trying to show that people who believe in God have no rational grounds for belief. Rather, their claim to knowledge is of the the table-thumping kind. But of course, I've given four arguments for the existence of God tonight, and I think you first of all need to show that those arguments don't work before you start psychoanalyzing away how come I believe in this God that you think you've shown there is no good reason to believe. I don't think you show that there's no good reason to believe in that God by ignoring the arguments for his existence and then trying to psychoanalyze the believer. Moving back to the arguments that I have defended this evening, on the moral argument, Professor Norris talks about consequentialism, again, as a way of justifying your moral choices, which is to talk about the issue of normative ethics rather than the issue of ontology that the moral argument I gave was concerned with. I I think we're slightly talking past each other here, and I want to try and and clarify. I'm not uh, claiming that in order to be a good moral realist, you have to believe in a God who has revealed to you certain things as being right or wrong, and that that is your claim, that is your basis for claiming that you know that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong because there's a God and he's revealed it, say, in the Bible or through religious experience and something like this. No, rather what I'm arguing is that I agree with moral realism. There really are these objective moral facts out there that we discover rather than that we invent. Yes, that does open up the possibility that we are mistaken sometimes about our moral knowledge, just as science can be mistaken about our understanding of the way the material world that objectively exists out there works. So yes, it does open up a sort of humble moral fallibility. Where I appeal to God is to explain, well, how come there are such things as these objective moral values, however it is we think we discover them? Uh, For tonight's debate, I'm perfectly prepared to say, okay, maybe consequentialism as a moral normative system will do you just fine and dandy for working out what the right thing to do is. But why is there such a thing as the right thing to do? What sort of thing is the moral value? It is wrong to torture small children for fun. Maybe you can know that through consequentialism. But what is this thing that you know when you make that moral claim? And how come we feel its force upon us as a prescription? How come it can obligate me? How come it is an ideal that we discover rather than invent? Where do you put that sort of thing in the furniture of reality, as it were? And I gave three arguments why uh, the mind of God and the character of God is the best explanation for such a thing. There was no further comeback on the argument from reason, so I'll leave my comments where they were before. There was also no further comeback on the cosmological argument, so again, I'll leave my comments where they were before. On the fine-tuning argument, probabilistically, it is very unlikely 
says Professor Norris. He agrees that the fine-tuning of the universe is unlikely, but then he says, but, you know, things are contingent, stuff happens by chance all the time, it's unlikely, but that's no reason to appeal to God. You can just appeal, well, to chance, to contingency, which seems to be the argument. But I gave a criteria of inferring design that I built the argument upon. Remember my comments about specified complexity and seeing the, the fridge magnet spelling out a poem on the fridge? Let me give you another analogy. If I took your bank card, put it in a hole in the wall machine, and punched in one four-digit number, getting the right four-digit number would be a prerequisite for me getting money out of the machine. Just as the fine-tuning of the universe is a prerequisite for there being life in the universe. Now, if me having taken your bank card and punched in a four-digit number, taking money out of your account, and you said to me, Pete, how come you've stolen my PIN number? If I responded to you by saying, look, any four-digit number is equally as unlikely as any other. It's just one four-digit number out of any uh, loads of possible arrangements of four digits. Uh, unlikely things happen all the time. Why are you suspicious of me? I don't think that's going to allay your doubts about my character. Uh, similarly, I don't think the response that, well, uh, stuff just happens, maybe we're just lucky, is a sufficient response to applying this criteria of specified complexity to the observation of the fine-tuning of the universe. Thank you. God and hell. Well, I, I, I do sort of detect here um, a kind of backing off of uh, the kind I, I was talking about at the beginning. Um, I think if you're going to defend the personalist conception of God, then you have to take on board the fact that God has been conceived in a certain way throughout the, 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 the tradition, the history of, of Christian belief. Um, there's one example, actually, of the way in which, as I said, um, you know, the, the, uh, the doctrine has been knocked into some sort of civilized shape. Most Christians don't nowadays believe in hell. You still meet a few who do. And uh, there's a very good book about this called The Decline of Hell by Brandon, which goes through the, the stages by which Christians were gradually induced, at least the more liberal of them, to, uh, to let go of that, that, that particularly nasty um, belief. Um, nasty not simply because we find it frightening, you know, in the way that uh, James Joyce does in Portraits of an Artist, this absolutely horrific imagery with which the, the children were terrified uh, by, by Catholic education in those days, um, but also nasty in a very basic way, that if we attribute those particular uh, qualities or properties, um, characteristics, to God, then this God is a brooding, a vengeful, a dictatorial, and thoroughly arbitrary figure. Now, of course, you can do what Peter's doing, and you can say, well, I'm not going to defend that God. But in that case, you have to um, specify exactly which God you are defending. And if you then, nevertheless, continue to say, this is a personal God, then you do have to ask, what is left of the Christian doctrine of an afterlife, which involves some kind of judgment? This is a personal executive deity. And at this point, the philosophers have had a lot to say, where they've not shied away from it. Schopenhauer said that trying to defend the Christian God, anything like the traditional Christian conception of the deity, um, was rather like trying to balance um, 
Um, um, uh, um, a, tri a triangle, a three-dimensional triangle, a, a, a pyramid, a pyramid on one of its um, points, um, on one of its apices. Um, it would always fall over in one direction or the other. If you try to square omnipotence with omniscience, with omnibenevolence, those three traditional um, uh, attributes of God, then you, you just won't do it. One or other of them has got to go. Um, so the God, the executive, the personal God that uh, Peter is defending, uh, unfortunately carries quite a lot of baggage, and some of that baggage is very difficult to accommodate in any humanly intolerable version of, humanly tolerable version of God. And I think we have to talk about humanly tolerable versions because, um, you know, it, it would be yet another uh, iniquity on God's part if he were to set us up with our particular limited powers of human intelligence in such a way that we can't understand him. And if we don't understand him or his nature or his attributes, then we may very well be uh, consigned to hell for all of eternity. Somewhere or other, the pyramid has to topple or over. Um, on normativity, well, I... I simply have to say again that norms, if they're going to be any good at all, if they're not to be dangerous, then they have to be derived from human interests, human welfare, and the best possible reckoning we can offer of what is good for people. Good for ourselves, yeah, a reasonable kind of uh, self-interest, but that tends to go along with a reasonable degree of, um, of altruism. And that is one of the lessons of Darwinism, one of the um, things that have become um, evident in new interpretations of Darwinism, uh, you know, as far as you can get from the old Victorian interpretation of nature red and truth uh, in tooth and claw carried over into the human sphere, um, a certain degree of enlightened altruism is absolutely built into human, um, most likely human genetic material, but uh, certainly human interests um, as uh, sort of evidenced in human social uh, cooperation. Uh, discovery versus invention, well, um, here, um, I don't think Rorty's a very reliable, uh, Richard Rorty, whom uh, Peter appealed to, a very reliable guide here. Rorty was very keen to undermine the pretensions of uh, reason and philosophy, and his version of Darwin was um, a strikingly irrationalist, um, or he would call it neo-pragmatist version of, uh, of Darwin. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly, we discover moral values, and we discover them to the best of our intelligence, but uh, that itself means that they have to be within human cognitive grasp. They can't belong to some transcendent realm, which um, anyone with sufficient sort of um, conviction or fiercely passionate uh, doctrinal adherence can claim to have special access to. That's where all the dangers um, lie. Um, the mind of God, which Peter appealed to, well, you know, you, I, I really don't think you can separate the mind in the way that the ontological arguments he advanced do, you know, sort of intellectual arguments for the existence of God, which have been absolutely comprehensively refuted by modern logicians, um, um, from the, the character of God. And I think, in the end, the argument against Christianity must go back to the character of God as traditionally conceived by Christians. Um, stuff happens, well, stuff does happen. You know, we make sense of it to the best of our ability. Uh, sometimes we are gobsmacked by it, as we might well be by the, the astero asteroid that gave us such a near miss. We introduce order into it, including human and moral order. Okay? But I think you have to recognize you can't derive moral order directly from any kind of um, purely a priori argument. This is one of the things that Kant um, very uh, successfully established. Okay? Um, but Kant then went on to say in a kind of um, sort of pragmatist way, but we must believe in Christianity because uh, the world would be such a moral chaos and our lives would be so lacking in meaning if we didn't. Well, this is just a false, um, false conclusion. You know, we can make meaning in our lives. We do it by all sorts of things, by um, artistic creativity and by fashioning good relationships and by, among other things, reforming um, the monotheistic religions so as to knock them into some sort of decent shape. 
Um, but um, we don't do it by appealing to any kind of a priori grounds. Um, the cosmological argument is simply another version of those traditional scholastic arguments that have been refined and reworked and extended and um, occasionally updated in light of latest scientific findings or theories. Um, but it still falls victim to the same um, error that Hume pointed out and then Kant pointed out after him. It's trying to sheer, claim sheer sort of a priori warrant for what is um, purportedly a matter of factual truth about the existence of God or about the nature and attributes of, um, of God. Um, so I, um, I, I'm, I've, I've probably overrun my time yet again, so I rest my case at, uh, at that point for now. Thank you. time of open questions from the audience, just to uh, establish a few ground rules. Um, whoever asks a question, you can ask it and you'll get an answer, but you won't get a chance to answer back to that answer. So you've got one chance to say your question and that's it, unless the speaker wants you to clarify your question. Um, what we'll do is, I'll ask people for a question, raise your hand and then Owen will take the mic up to you. So do we have any questions? Okay, if we go for you, Owen. In the grey hoodie. Is that mic on? It is. Uh, a question for Bill Williams. Uh, as a scientist, I rely on uh, proof for my beliefs. And um, if uh, there was some, uh, some kind of substantial proof for God, I would happily turn around my views. Um, how much proof and how many scientific refutes would you say would be required for you to change your views? And do you not think that it's maybe a bit medieval and, as uh, Professor Norris said, unnecessary to add the extra level of complexity saying, well, because God made it so? I have no microphone. Um, Come over. Okay. <laughs> Shall I use the lecture now? Yes. Yeah, okay. We'll have to uh, be popping up and down like kangaroos. Um, yeah, what would, you're basically asking what would it take me to think that my belief in God was falsified um, okay just to, to summarise it for the tape uh, as well um, well for example if you did think like Professor Norris uh, just commented uh, he seems to think that the logical problem of evil uh, was a knockdown argument against God if you thought it was logically contradictory to claim that God had the, the, the qualities of being omniscient and omnibenevolent and omnipotent and so on, if that were a good argument, it would be a knockdown argument uh, against belief in the kind of God that I believe in, at least. It's not an argument for atheism, but it is an argument against a certain portrayal of the character of God. And if I thought that argument worked, that would be the kind of argument, some sort of argument showing that the, the concept of God that I was working with was logically... Uh, inconsistent and so on or moving on to the, the more usual sort of form of the, the problem of evil which surely has to be the, the main argument against belief in God although it didn't really come up much tonight um, I think if, if you could show that there, there was uh, an amount of gratuitous evil in the world that was so much gratuitous evil that it must be incompatible with that kind of a God and that kind of observation of, of, a, of a huge enough amount of gratuitous evil in the world would certainly count against belief in that kind of God. So there's a couple of indications, and I, I should not hog the time. Thank you for your question.
Okay, thank you very much, Peter. I just want to add again now that um, when Peter earlier said that he wasn't going to address an issue because he thought it wasn't strictly within the realms of the debate, that is now open and he is happy to open those sort of questions. So if you feel something is an argument for or against God or specifically the Christian God, uh, both of our debaters are happy to address that. Can I now have a question for Chris, please? Question specifically for Chris. Okay, uh, right at the back, there's a girl with a black sort of cardi on. Um, well, here again, I mean, I can quite see that there might be some notion of an impersonal ground of all being that, uh, that might, well, it's the, the existence thing that comes into it. I, I can quite see that people might get all kinds of, well, comfort and uplift and a sense of transcendence and, uh, I don't know, the kind of thing I get perhaps from music, listening to music or reading poetry or a good philosophical argument that comes to them from thinking about... Um, about the, the ground of all being, or some kind of um, sort of unspecified transcendent being, perhaps. But I think as soon as you start to introduce personal attributes, you know, as soon as you call it God, or call it Allah, or call it um, anything you, you care to, or Jehovah, you, you care to name, then you're immediately giving it executive powers. You're immediately turning it into a personality with some kind of power, power of judgment, or power of ultimate disposal over human, uh, human beings. And I think that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah. So I'm willing to yes, say that uh, as a matter of psychology, as a matter perhaps of some very basic human need, there's a constant tendency to posit something beyond us, something so far beyond us that we can't begin to conceptualize it. But as soon as you begin to try to conceptualize it, then it becomes dangerous because it becomes potentially dogmatic and uh, it turns into the grounds for persecuting people who don't believe in your, in your conception. Thank you, Chris. straightforward answer to a straightforward question. Yes, I do believe that God intervenes within human affairs, certainly within certain crucial events within the, the Christian revelation claim, uh, but even today I, I do happen to believe that sometimes God does things in a way that's beyond the, the normal way in which the universe that he's created works. 
But then what you raise on the back of that really is, is, is simply a, a reiteration of the problem of, of evil. Um, and that's obviously a huge debate that's very difficult to pass a quick comment upon. But um, on the logical problem that Professor Norris raised, in fact he'll want to come back on this, but on the, the logical idea that, that it's inconsistent to claim that there's a God with certain characteristics and that there's evil, that idea has generally been abandoned even by most atheist philosophers of religion um, since particularly the groundbreaking work of Alvin Plantinga on the free will defence. And I think most of the discussion now is really around this second version of the problem of evil that I mentioned about gratuitous evil and is there, is there too much evil in the world so that, such that evil counts against God? It's not a knockdown proof, but maybe there's so much that it counts against him. I mean, there's lots of things that can be said about that, but one of the difficulties is, of course, we're not in a position to run the control experiment of seeing what the world would be like if there isn't a God, if there is one, if you see what I mean. So we only have the one sample, uh, so it's difficult to do a sort of comparative statistical study on that one. Thank you, Peter. Can we have another question for Professor Chris, please? In the front, please. Uh, I was interested uh, in your descriptions this evening of um, the Christian God as someone who was unpleasant. Uh, perhaps you said, forgive me if I was correctly, but you wouldn't want to meet in the street. Um, had personal characteristics that were particularly pleasant. And I wanted to ask you how you felt that correlated with one of the, if not the central tenet of Christianity, which is that although um, God created a perfect world, man sinned, God's intention to save mankind meant that he sent his son in the likeness of human flesh, and that Jesus Christ lived a sinless perfect life, helped people, healed people, was crucified and was raised from the dead in order to provide salvation and atonement for um, all mankind. But whether or not you believe that, if, you're, if you don't believe that, um, that is still the central message of the Christian gospel. How does then that correlate to the God you describe as someone who is mean, harsh, who would bring me to the street? Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, th I think it, it, um, <clears throat> it brings up another version of the, the pyramid argument, really, um, in the sense that... Um, I mean, you, you can find plenty of examples of, uh, of Christians who have started off you know, with due humility, imitating Jesus Christ and behave very well very often. But as soon as they get to be bishops, or especially as soon as they get to be inquisitors, they behave more like God the Father, and they start persecuting. So I think it's, it, the problem is that the old problem with, with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, how on earth do you square um, the fact that Christ is supposed to be merciful and all-forgiving and to bring salvation and redemption? with the fact that he is consubstantial with God the Father, in which case he is also this judge figure, this rather appalling figure, at least on any personalist conception of God. So I think the Trinitarian doctrine simply won't stand up. It will always fall over one way or the other. That's, that's a very quick answer, and there's a lot of very subtle theological argument around this, but nevertheless, I think just the, the basic narrative, the basic conception of the Christian Trinity, Trinitarian conception of God, is another of these extremely unstable um, conceptions. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Okay, I'm just going to break the rules a little bit in that 
I'm going to ask a question because I think it needs an answer. Um, Peter, this issue has come up quite a bit tonight about whether the God of the Bible is cruel in uh, damning people for one sin and is he, um, does, is that God the Father, is he um, reconcilable with Jesus Christ? Um, does that work, Peter? Yes, please answer in less than one paragraph. Um, of course, I think it is reconcilable, otherwise I wouldn't hold the, the Christian position that I do. Um, having written a, a book about C.S. Lewis, it just pops into my mind um, C.S. Lewis's uh, quote on this subject about there being two kinds of people in life. Um, those to whom, uh, whom ultimately say to God, your will be done, that they, they want uh, to relate to him and to receive uh, the forgiveness that, that Christ exemplified. And those to whom in the end God says, your will be done, because they don't want that. Um, do you want a God who would force himself upon you, uh, like uh, a sort of lover that you end up having to take out the restraining order against because he won't take no for an answer? That, again, would be a very difficult uh, moral image to have of God and yet if you have an image of God who's not going to force himself on you um, then you have to leave room for that hu human free will to not want to relate to God and for God to, to respect that and those are the kind of um, categories that I would work with in terms of understanding the Christian concepts of, of, of heaven and of hell I don't give up on those traditions Professor Norris mentioned about um, changes in the church's understanding of those doctrines and yes Church's understanding of doctrines do change over time, just as our scientific theories change over time, so your theological theories change over time sometimes. But we have to always ask in both cases, is there good reasons for the change, or is it just uh, a sociological change uh, because that happens to be conducive to the particular uh, mores and mores of the society that you're working with? Um, but I think um, that there's an adequate conception of the goodness of God, who is this ground of moral value. That's the God who I'm defending, and if you think that God is not the God described in the New Testament, then you would take that as, as a good reason for not accepting the New Testament account of who God is. I think when you look at the, the character of Christ, rather than the character of people who fail to follow him adequately, such as myself, um, you get a good image uh, of God. Um, but, as I said, tonight's debate was about God, and I think the question we had about um, whether or not there could be some kind of even a personal God um, was really the issue. And it then, then becomes a secondary issue to deal with, and has he revealed himself in Christ or not? And if you already think there is a God who can work miracles, you're in a much better position, I think, to raise that second uh, debate. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for two more questions. Um, we have one for each speaker. First of all, can I have a question for Professor Chris? Um, yeah, fellow in the, the interesting light blue not done up shirt. <laughs> so Christians and atheists agree that there was a man called Jesus in history that existed, he was born and he was killed on the cross. Contesting his own word that he was the Son of God. Now, C.S. Lewis said that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. 
who do you think he was out of those three and why? Because it's untenable to say he didn't exist and that he didn't die across. Okay, well, he was someone with a fierce and burning conviction of his own uh, sort of divinely appointed mission. There's no doubt about that. Um, he was certainly sincere. He was certainly, uh, in many ways, admirable, some of his teachings, not all of them. Um, what actually deconverted me from Christianity shortly after I was confirmed was reading Bertrand Russell's uh, Why I'm Not a Christian, in which he points out that even Jesus, although uh, Russell has a lot of time for Jesus, was prone to um, a degree of megalomania and also to extremely short-temperedness. You know, if you notice there were people chatting at the back of the crowd when he was preaching, he would, for instance, blast a fig tree to make his point about being uh, severely displeased with them. So um, Russell says, not the best tone to adopt, surely, in these circumstances. So, you know, not perfect, but nevertheless admirable in many ways, but um, with a distinct proneness to um, occasionally take a rather sort of godlike point of view. Um, and I, I do think that in the end you can't separate your conception of Jesus Christ from the teaching that was promulgated in the name of Jesus Christ. And that includes the Trinitarian conception of, um, of God, Jesus and the Holy Ghost. And I think for reasons I explained that is not just an unstable conception but one that's liable to give rise to extremely bad behaviour. As soon as people identify themselves as they're always liable to with God the Father rather than Jesus. So I have very mixed feelings about Jesus. You know, I think he said some splendid things. I think that... Uh, Insofar as we're reliant on the, the reports of the, uh, the writers of the Gospels for his teachings, we're dealing with, in the Gospels, with some expertly fabricated and very, I mean, fabricated in the sense written up in the way that all documents, including historical documents, um, are written up. Uh, the, 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 sheer, the fact that they are such brilliant narratives, the fact that the, the narrative of the crucifixion is so beautifully told, you know, with all the expertise and the pointedness and the, and the balance and the superb sense of sort of symbolic placement of episodes and so forth, is reason to believe that they were written up and they were progressively elaborated. So I think if you recognise the sheer literary craftsmanship and narrative brilliance of the Gospels, then you recognise they're constructing a figure of Jesus who is going to sort of grab our sympathies and enlist and sort of recruit our, um, our belief uh, in all sorts of ways. The very fact that they're so brilliant in that way means that we should always incline to suspect their uh, historical truth. So the basic facts, I think, are they're not undisputed, but I think they're pretty well established. Yes, he was born. Yes, he died. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he believed certain things. But beyond that, you know, there's a very elaborate and very expertly um, conceived uh, mythology around Jesus, which I think we should be sceptical about, as we should about, about most things, including scientific truth. Scepticism is always um, a healthy attitude. Where it becomes dodgy is where it leans over into cynicism, but they're two different things. So, thank you. Thanks for the question. How does 
a Christian God. Look down on this and see it as being good. You raise a number of interesting issues. One of them is about the inevitable heat death uh, of the universe as thermodynamics plies its trade throughout the cosmos. Um, of course, there will only be an inevitable thermodynamic heat death of the universe if Christianity is false, because Christianity claims that God will step in to, to recreate the world into the new heavens and the new earth um, uh, that we talk about uh, as, 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 the, as heaven. Um, so uh, it would be question begging simply to make the scientific observation and then use that as a criticism against the existence of God when the criticism will only go, go through on the assumption that there is no God who's going to, to step in um, so I think we can set that to one side and come back again to as you raise the, the, the problem of evil what about all of this history of suffering in the world uh, a long history of suffering is the pain of existence worth the gain of existence, to boil it down to its, its simplest terms. Um, and I guess every one of us has to make that existential decision for ourselves um, every day, uh, in a sense. How can God look at the world and think that it's good? Well, it's interesting to know that the language translated as good in the, in the Genesis creation account, we have this reiteration of, and God saw, and it was good, and God saw, and it was good. And after the end of the, the, the days of creation, you get, and God saw that it was very good. But it is interesting to note that the language being translated as good there uh, could perhaps uh, better be rendered and saw that it was, it was fit for purpose. It was good for the purposes which it was intended. It's not the claim that the current creation is perfect. Um, it's not as if the new heavens and the new earth, uh, that, that of which Christ's resurrection is our first forward sample, if you like, is kind of an afterthought uh, on God's part within Christian theology. That is always where the creation has been headed. And the creation at the moment certainly includes the possibility of sin, of rejecting God, of misusing our free will. Um, but this is the, the staging post, if you like, for that ultimate uh, consummation of the purpose of our lives um, that Christianity looks forward to. Um, so this may not at all be, as some philosophers have tried to argue, you know, the best of all possible worlds kind of thing, but it might be a perfectly acceptable, morally acceptable way of getting the best of all possible worlds, as it were. Marvellous. So that concludes... Wales's first ever debate on the concept of God. Can we have a round of applause for our
to our secretary. Again, there's all the little slips that are on the tables by the door and by the voting boxes. Um, please, please do vote. We'd be interested to know um, your opinion. So we'll post that, I think, on the Christian Union Facebook page and the Atheist Union Secular Society Facebook page as well. I mean, how many of you haven't voted yet? Okay, that's cool. Um, that's a lot of us. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll do. Um, we'll catch up afterwards and we'll uh, report them back to you uh, via the internet. Um, another shameless plug. I mean, if you want to get involved with our society, go on Facebook and look us up. Um, more pressing matter is that we are going to the pub tonight. So if you want to come along, find out us and we'll have a bit of a chat. Okay. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you to Ed, thank you to Peter and Chris. Thank you so much.